Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. We have a special guest today, Katie Fry Hester. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm really glad to be here. So before we go any further, I will give the usual caveats that start the show, and that is the opinions that are expressed on this show are not those of Howard Community College, faculty, staff, or otherwise. And insofar as we touch on legal issues, it is not intended to be specific legal advice. If you require legal assistance, it is imperative you go see a lawyer and tell them about all of the facts of your situation. We have Katie here today to talk about her slightly unusual candidacy, in my view. Tell us what office you're running for and where that's located, please. So I'm running for state senate in Maryland's 9th district. That includes Ellicott City and Sykesville and Highland and about Fulton. It also includes the lower part of Carroll County and half of Eldridgeburg. Now, are you running as an incumbent or as a challenger? I'm a, I'm a challenger, and I'm also a first-time candidate. So what prompted you to undertake something like this? Well, um, just a bit about myself, and then I'll sure, answer that sure. question. I'm a longtime Howard County resident. I'm a mom. I've got two girls who are 9 and 12. I'm also an ag bioengineer. And I have Let me stop you there. Oh. What is an ag bioengineer? Oh, goodness. An ag bioengineer is um, most similar to an environmental engineer, okay. but focused on agricultural or biological issues. I focused more on the ag side myself. Okay. Um, I actually, you know, it kind of helped me in my career, um, but what I spent the last 20 years doing is helping business and government and community groups work together to solve problems. Because even though they're coming from different sectors, they often share common goals, but they may need somebody to help them understand how to get there. So you sort of, and we have this topic periodically because we've had judges and other lawyers on, you mediate between these different forces to bring them together to accomplish positive objectives. Yeah, you can say that. Okay. For sure. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that, one of the topics that we've worked on is, is health, is health healthcare. Sure. And here in the United States, you know, a lot of companies have workplace wellness programs. Now, that's a win for the company because it keeps their employees healthy, but it's also a win for the community because people are healthier. Uh, in other places, I've worked on programs, um, you know, that dealt with the HIV AIDS crisis. Sure. And in those cases, employees were dying. And the businesses wanted to make sure their employees stayed well. So they did stuff like give out free antiretroviral drugs. And if you take that to, you know, what does that mean in Howard County? Sure. Well, look at the opioid crisis. I know that last year we had 150 overdoses, 50 were fatal. And the county executive has plans to put those in all the county offices. But what if we engage the business in helping to solve this problem? So you're suggesting rather than having it be in the county health office or something that you have it more spread out and have businesses involved in efforts to eliminate or reduce opioid problems. I think so. I'm I'm on um, the ski patrol at Wisp Mountain. Okay. And so I'm a first responder myself. Sure. And one of the things that we've all been trained is how to administer Narcan. Okay. But there's a ski resort there. People can overdose at a ski resort. I so bet that they is do. an example of a business that might want to have Narcan on site. One of the things we did this year was to apply for a grant. And we got um, $40,000 from uh, the state. Um, it's called Meredith. I forget exactly what it stands sure. for. But we got $40,000 to cover Narcan training and, and the drug itself so that every ski patroller on the mountain can now be ready to pre and prepared to assist in the event of an overdose. It seems like that's something that's so important to be essentially everywhere in our community. And yet, I wouldn't know where to find it if I had a friend or a client or something who overdosed. I, I guess I'd call 911, but yeah. that may be a little late. 
I think, you know, keeping them with the AED device is a good place to keep them. But we need to raise the awareness because everybody knows how to do CP- needs to know how to do CPR and then where the Narcan is, right? Sure, sure. Um, but you asked why I'm running. Yes. And I, I have to be honest, I never thought I would run for political office. Okay. After the presidential election, things just got really polarized. And even at the bus stop, like my neighbors stopped being... You know, neighbors. They turned into Republicans and Democrats and stopped talking to each other. And I mean, that was emph- you know, overly emphasized online as well. Sure. And I think here in Maryland, like first and foremost, we're neighbors and, and most people can agree on kind of things um, in, in the middle. You know, diversity in this county is, is one of our strengths. Sure. And I think that even though we can be diverse politically, we can usually find things that we agree on. So that that was kind of the, you know, coming from a collaborative background of bringing people together and sure. then being shocked by the polarization, you know, spurred me into wanting, wanting to do something. So did you feel that this election cycle just brought it into clearer view that the divisions in Maryland and in your neighbors? Yeah, it brought it all, it brought it all home. I mean, literally to the bus stop. So do you feel that you would have a capability to mediate between these factions to have more productive outcomes in Maryland? So I think we need to stop talking about the politics and look at the issues. Okay. So whether it's education, I mean, everybody cares about education. They do. And we need to stop this slide, you know, in terms of Maryland schools going from number one to number six. So that's in everybody's best interest to focus on that. Do you have any particular suggestions that you would undertake as a state senator in an effort to stop the slide? Well, I mean, there's a lot There's a lot that can be done, and the Kirwan Commission report has come out, and there's a lot of recommendations. Sure. Because of my background okay. working with business, I'm particularly interested in the career track education piece. And uh, what, what does that mean in common parlance? Well, I mean... It, Formerly, like vocational training sure, programs. Sure. But basically, if you look at our economy at the local level, we have a mismatch between, between the skills that businesses want to hire for and the skills that uh, graduates are coming out with. Um, and, and so I think if you think about things like apprenticeship programs, those can go beyond the building trades. We could have apprenticeship programs for healthcare, ag, renewable energy, cybersecurity. And the other thing about this is that it's just a win-win-win for the economy because the state is already investing in education, and so we don't actually need more money for, to do this. We could just kind of shift. So we're already spending $15,000 per student per year okay. um, in the 11th and 12th grades. We could just shift a little bit more of that into skills training. We spend $7,800 per student per year on community college. Once again, shift a little more of that into apprenticeship programs. And then if you look at the, the grants, I mean, I hope everybody knows that you can go to your state senator for a, for a, um, a post-high school financial aid grant, um, but that's $112 million a year. And that could be opened up to go beyond college to um, skills training and certifications as well. So you have had experiences with a bunch of different entities um, that kind of have brought you to believe that you could really help Maryland. And I wonder if you could talk about your background a little bit professionally and how you think that comes into play here. Well, I mean, I, I mentioned the bit earlier about the companies I've worked for in healthcare. Sure. Um, I think I've also done the same thing on, um, you know, what I was talk- just talking about with the career track education in there's a country that I was working in where the manufacturing sector couldn't hire people 
that they really wanted to hire. Okay. Um, what with, was the impediment to them hiring the people? It was this, it was a shortage of skilled labor in the country. So okay. they were bringing people in um, from from the adjacent countries, even though they had actually a ninety percent unemployment rate within the country. So what country are we talking about? Zambia. Okay. Uh, and so. In that situation, there was an antiquated apprenticeship law, mm-hmm. which basically prevented uh, companies from hiring students while they were still learning okay. and paying them. So we were able to switch that law. The manufacturing companies worked with the technical institutes to train the professors and to provide them with new equipment, new machines, basically to train their students on. Sure. And so it resulted in an upgrade to the training, an upgrade to the law, and cost savings for the business because they were hiring local people and improvement to the overall economy. So that that's something that's no, really that highly very relevant. sensible to me. Um, the other thing that kind of you know I, I could use some of my career skills in is is looking at how we rebuild and revitalize Ellicott City. And yeah, I, I'm interested. I, I've talked to some other candidates about that, and I haven't felt like I've received the most concrete responses and I know it's not an easy thing and that sometimes there's people who may lose their business in Ellicott City, you know, because it's in the flood area. But but I'd be interested in what you think would be beneficial in Ellicott City and how we could bring it about. Yeah. So one of the roles the state senator plays sure. is to bring resources back to the district they represent. And you know, in the in the aftermath of the last flood, there's been a number of floods, but in the aftermath of the last flood, what I saw was people coming together to help out. I personally was down there with other volunteers. There were so many people from all walks of life shoveling mud, shoveling mud and coffee beans in the instance of Bean Hollow. I remember. There was uh, businesses donating um, shovels and wheelbarrows and fans and wet vacs, and there were people working on various types of economic development for the small businesses. Um, the thing that I didn't see was that much activity at the state level. So I recently called and I spoke to somebody in the in the Maryland State Senate, and I said, you know, like, what kinds of pots of money can we tap into to help with rebuilding? Because the county's really struggling and they've got this emergency bill going through. Um, there's something called the Rainy Day Fund. I've heard about this Rainy Day Fund. Which has $900 million Is in that it. all? And we've <laughs> never actually tapped into it. So um, I just... I just wanted to say, you know, like if this wasn't time to tap into that rainy day fund. There was a rainy day and it had some really bad consequences for Ellicott City. So that, I mean, that's one area. There's, I also know that Annapolis recently got $1.25 million for capital improvements around storm mitigation, stormwater mitigation. And that's because the representative from that district asked for that support. Sure. Was that for another jurisdiction or where was the, where'd the money go to? Do you know? It went to, it went to Annapolis. Okay. Like not, not like the Senate, but the, the Senator from an, or the, spe- the speaker from Annapolis asked for that money. I got gotcha. you. And, and they and they received it. Um, there's also money from the DNR. There's seven hundred thousand. DNR meaning Department of Natural Resources. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's aimed at climate resilience. So that would be something that we could tap into right now. So I think that there's so much. Um, and, and I'm working really closely with Courtney Watson, and she's identified like four other sources of funding. So there's all these sources of funding that we could tap into at the state level, and it's just not getting done. The other thing that I think, and this goes back to what my career has been, if you look at the watershed, BG&E is the largest single landowner 
in that watershed. Mm -hmm. And so I called, um, you know, I had some, I went on a great tour with Lori Lilly from Hoko Eco Works and some other folks, and they talked about the role that BG&E could play. Um, and so I called them and I asked, you know, what has, have your conversations been to date? Um, and then I testified about the possibility that it could be a great public-private partnership around stormwater mitigation on BG&E lands. And I was happy that at last night's working session, uh, they said, oh yeah, that partnership with BG&E, that's back on the table. Oh, that, congratulations. That's, that's <laughs> so, a pretty good achievement. Well, I can't take credit for it sure, at all, but sure. I mean, I did call, I raised it to the, the VP level, and um, then testified, and now they're having conversations again. So I think if you ask a company if they want to help, they often do, and it's often in their best interest. I mean, BG&E doesn't want Ellicott City to flood either. No, they do not. They do not. A, I was actually watching 60 Minutes the other night, and they had this guy from Holland who is the king of you know dealing with storms and stormwater mitigation and stuff. And he had a host of suggestions, but an awful lot of it is just having places where the water can go that isn't, for example, downtown Ellicott City, but can be spread out across the BG&E land or somehow in the Patapsco River Basin or something like that. So it does seem like the sort of thing that he would be recommending. So Ellicott City is a concern for you. Opioids are a concern for you. Education is a concern for you. What else do you think should be on the agenda in your capacity as state senator in District 9? Well, in this day and age, I think we need a strong champion for women's rights. And, you know, I'm... I'm a wor I, I've had a full-time job. I'm raising two kids. Um, both of them are girls. I want them to have every single opportunity that they can. And um, what I've seen is that the gender pay gap uh, for women and men continues to widen. And Which that, seems puzzling to me. It does. And now women, there are more women working now than there are men. So I'm, I'm hoping eventually we will, we will correct this. Do you think perhaps women voting in numbers for their own interests would be helpful? Totally. Yes. <laughs> um, it, it affects it affects it affects the women and it affects the economy because if you're underpaying your workers, they're investing less in their communities and the economy it slows down overall economic growth. And then if you do something like you require you you allow companies to ask a, a woman or anybody for that matter how much they were making at their last job, that perpetuates the difference in that gap. So I am totally on the side of supporting equal rights for, so <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, on, I'm, I'm for supporting equal pay for equal work. I think that that's a good notion. Maryland is one of the states that has an equal rights amendment, you know, and it never quite, I could never comprehend why it didn't work nationally other than people managed to find ways to sabotage it. But yeah. We are a state that has it and I have had occasion to use it in a couple of cases. Well, that's fantastic. I was I was very surprised myself to learn that in 2016, our current senator voted against that, and she's a woman. I would love to hear her answer to why she voted against that bill. You know, you may have an opportunity soon, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me ask you this question. You have an opponent, and what's your opponent's name? I'm running against the incumbent Senator Gail Bates, who's been in office for 16 years. 16 years? 16 years. And do your views on issues differ with her in some cases? Yes. Okay. On, on at least at least half of them, okay. I would say. You know, I, our, the demographics of our district have changed. Okay. We are currently 40% Democratic, 40% Republican, and 20% Independent. And those independent folks, I mean, they're super educated and they swing. They, they kind of, they don't vote party line. And so I would say that um, having somebody who is a really good listener, really good at representing diverse views, and somebody who's 
um, moderately, you know, uh, moderately fiscally moderate, but more socially liberal, is kind of where the mainstream of District Nine is. I think that's where Howard County is, generally speaking. So I chose purple for my color because it's a combination of red and blue, and it's it's about it's about meeting in the middle and about compromise and about listening to everybody. When I am in office, knock on wood, um, you know. I'm not going to ask when my constituent calls me what party they're from. Sure. I'm going to take all of their requests, treat them all the same, and use all that intelligence to make better decisions. So you have various debates coming up with your opponent. Uh, If somebody wanted to attend one or have knowledge of it, can you give us an idea when one or two of them are? Yeah, well, the League of Women Voters is doing one uh, this Thursday night at the – at the county building, okay, and and I n- people generally don't show up for them, they, but they they film us. Okay. They'll give us each a thir- one minute and thirty seconds to respond, and then they'll air those on government TV and on the voter four one one website. So, if one were interested, could one attend? I, yeah, they're open. Yeah. They are open. I'd love to see you there. I think I go on at six oh five. Six oh five. The other thing is that. You know, with with the transparency that we have now in government, um, all of people's voting records are online. Sure. So you can go to votesmart.org and Google uh, and and search on Senator Gail Bates, and you'll see everything that she voted for. Um, and since we're on the topic of voting, we should mention that it's National Ve- Voter Registration Day today. I noticed that in the lobby today that the dragon was up there uh, here at Howard Community College trying to help people register to vote. And I- think that's vitally important. I have a feeling a number of your constituents were up there, or prospective constituents, <laughs> registering to vote. Yeah, I, I hope so. It's um, it's easy to do. You can register to vote online. You can also go to uh, the Board of Elections or the DMV. And this last year in the legislative session, there was a bill called SARA, which was the Secure and Accessible Registration Act. And basically what this d- did is that if you have to go to a state agency for any reason, um, like the DMV, it lets you opt in. So you've just given them all the information that you need to get your driver's license. Sure. And at the end, they say, okay, do you want us to register you to vote? And it's, it's um, unless you say no, you're already registered to vote, which I think is a great thing because when more people register, more people vote, and we have more of the, the electorate participating in our democracy. And that was, again, another bill that Senator Bates voted against. I have noticed a trait in Republican candidates that appears to be one of trying to discourage voting or suppress voting, particularly among groups that are unlikely to vote for them. And it just seems to me that, you know, fair is fair, and the electorate should get out and say what they really want and not have their votes taken away. There's a school of thought that suggests when you get a Social Security number, uh, you should be assigned a capability to be registered to vote automatically when you turn 18, which which makes sense to me, Yeah, um, you know. I, I, I agree with you completely. I think that you know our, the problem is that we don't have enough people participating, enough people j- jumping in. So I would be – I mean, you have to do things the right way, make them safe and secure. But um, the, the easier and the safer um, and the more barriers we take away from people, I, I think people will feel empowered and um, can have more of a say in, in who represents them. 
I know in Australia they pay voters to vote and they have fairly astro- – yes. I mean it's not a huge amount of money. I think it was like 15 bucks or something. But it is amazing how taking a little time off to go vote, assuming that the facilities don't make you wait for hours and that sort of thing, you get you know more like 90% voting level in that kind of thing. Yeah, the Australians are also really big on barbecues. And I think that they have – I didn't know they paid them. That's yeah. amazing. But I think it's also in Australia where they have barbecues alongside the polling locations, and it's like a party. One day off, go see your neighbors, hang out, barbecue, and go vote. That's one of the things that I have also heard suggestions of, and that is that Election Day should be a national holiday because it is you know, it's hardest on people who have the least economic advantage to yes. take time off. You know, you're working two, three jobs and raising your kids and not necessarily living in the best conditions. The last thing that you're going to want to do is take two or three hours to go to a polling place and wait in line. I mean, where I wait, you know, vote in Highland, it takes 10 minutes, but I do know there are places elsewhere that it takes a long time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great idea um, because it's something that all Americans citizens share, right? The right to vote. Um, the other thing that we, we are lucky to have in Howard County this year is we have early voting. So that begins, I think, October 25th. And you can, um, there's a whole bunch, of, don't wait, don't wait till election day to vote. No, get out there, vote early. Like what happens if it's raining or you get sick or your kid gets in a car accident? Like heaven forbid something happens. Sure. Vote early, but vote once. <laughs> As it used to be said in my native Chicago, vote early and vote off. Yes. Of course, we know that isn't legal. <laughs> You've had kind of an interesting path in that you've had the privilege of living in some other countries Mm -hmm. at various points in time. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional and personal travels? Oh, God, I I love to travel. Um, They say you learn a lot about the United States by looking at it from other other countries. I mean, Um, you're in Zambia, obviously. Yeah, so I worked on a contract in Zambia, and I never actually lived there, but I spent three years there, probably four or five weeks a year, and that was very, very friendly people. with a uh, huge disparity in economic income. Um, I've always been somebody who wanted to help people. Sure. And so helping people who earn $2 a day um, is an amazing opportunity. Uh, I also worked, uh, lived in South Africa. For, now, where, where did you live in South Africa? We were in Stellenbosch, which was very... very now, I'm not quite sure. I know Cape Town. I know Johannesburg. Where's... Stellenbosch is, is right between the two. Okay. It's kind of the outskirts of Cape Town. So I was there working for Ford Motor Company right before the, uh, the World Cup. And transportation was a problem. So they had, they were trying to bring all the different players in mobility together to create a system that could cope with the crowds that were going to come and and see the World Cup there. So we had um, buses and taxis. Uh, the tax the taxi industry is huge there. We even had an entrepreneur who wanted to do like these moving walkways. And just connecting everybody together with smart technology so that getting around without driving a car was possible. And you notice that this is Ford Motor Company who is moving into this space. They're not trying to sell more cars. They're trying to make money by doing the environmentally correct thing and make it easy for people to get around on mass transit. And I know that they haven't had the best best business results, but I do appreciate it when companies look for those win-wins. And at least in South Africa, it worked. It's interesting. It sounds as though it kind of plays into what you were talking about earlier about working in conjunction with the government and with private industry to have positive outcomes for the larger population. Yeah, it does. Um, The thing about partnerships is that they take time. So if you're doing your job and I'm doing my job and that government official is doing their job and you're all under pressure to get your job done, 
it, it takes somebody who's who's got a unique perspective and a bit of time to say, hey, why don't the three of us sit down together and figure out if there's a something that we can all do that will help us all do our jobs better together. And it usually takes a bit more time uh, to start with, but then once you get going, your results are more sustainable because you've got more people working on it. You're, there's an economy of scale because there's more resources coming into it. And you usually have better ideas because there's more brains thinking about it. So it is, it, you can apply it on any scale. I've worked internationally and now I'm, hap- I'm really looking forward to working at the state level. So we have an interesting time in Maryland where the overwhelming voting population is Democratic and we have a Republican governor mm-hmm. and we have here in Howard County a Republican county executive. And it just seems like it's it's a little bit anomalous to me, and, and I'm not quite sure why it is, whether the Republicans are somehow putting forward Democratic ideas or candidates who are better able. I don't, I don't know quite what it is, but it's it has puzzled me, and I've asked others about this a little bit. Do you have any thoughts about why that is the case? And I mean, to be clear, from my standpoint, if the best candidate is a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, a socialist, whatever it is, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering the way forward for the Democratic Party at the present time. And I guess some of it is new leadership such as yourself, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Hmm. I mean, I've been really, really focused on my own race. Sure. And I do think that we will see a split ticket voting um, this this year. Um in my district, but in other districts as well. I mean, I think people are fed up with um, the Trump agenda. I mean, it just there's a lot of people who just don't agree with the way he conducts his business, even if they do agree with his policies, which m- most people also don't. Um, but I, I think what what people like when you said that it's you know there's there's a split between the Republican governor and like the Democratic legislature. I mean, people sometimes don't want to talk to me because I'm running as an independently minded Democrat. Sure, They're like we got too many Democrats, and I say, well, listen, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not your average Democrat. Um, but I think people are looking for that balance. I think that they're looking. I mean, they 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 don't want to vote straight party line um, anymore, and because they think that the checks and balances are good. Um, and like I said, I've been. Really, really focused on my my own race. Sure. But I, I do think that people are, the, the good news is that people are paying attention. And if they pay attention to the issues and they vote for the people, um, you know, I, I, think, um, I think we'll have a good outcome. So I did ask various of the Democratic people I've spoken to recently, Calvin Ball and Rich Gibson and stuff, about these the blue wave that it appears is likely to occur. And I recognize it's more a national phenomenon. I wondered if you thought Maryland would be a blue wave state or, or how you think it's likely to go. I think the fact that we had five new senators ousted um, by more progressive candidates um, you know, from all the jurisdictions. I mean, I think that's the first sign of the blue wave in the in the in the primary elections. And I think it will be, I think it will hit here because I think people are, you know, pushing back against the Trump agenda. But I don't think it's going to be as strong as other countries. Uh, sorry, other states. Okay. So we're here at Howard Community College, and it sounds like some of the things that you are suggesting would really benefit HCC. I mean, it's a great place, but it sounds like these ideas of finding funds to channel into vocational programs and that sort of thing could have a direct benefit to Howard Community College. Are there particular areas that you found in your work that uh, would benefit from more vocational resources? I mean, is it being electricians or plumbers or is it kind of across the board? 
I have to say, um, electricians make a lot of money. They do. (laughs) I pay them occasionally. Uh, Yeah, me too. So I've had that experience. But I think what we need to do is look at opening up the whole idea of apprenticeships. Um, They're much more broadly interpreted in other places. And so whether it's an apprenticeship to be um, a master chef or an apprenticeship to be in the healthcare um, in the healthcare industry, which is very large here in Maryland. I think we need to not only, I mean, the trades are hurting. The trades need more skilled people. Sure. But beyond those, these other areas, I mean, everything is ripe for, for apprenticeship. I mean, it's intriguing that historically, I mean, I'm old enough, and I've been a lawyer, I represented a lot of union workers, and they used to just dominate things. And across the span of my career, I've been doing this 37 years, it has really changed and they've been diminished. There's still big and powerful unions and that sort of thing. And I suppose there were some things that maybe didn't go well because of them. But I do think that it's had a dramatic effect on people's incomes and their benefits. And that it kind of has decreased the middle class at a time when an awful lot of money has flowed into Maryland for people of, of means. Yeah. I mean, I, I what you're saying resonates. I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a resurgence of unions and if that resurgence um, started with women. You know, I think that that's a wonderful idea. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for appearing today on Everyday Law. I wish you the best in your election, and I hope to see you again soon. Thanks so much, Bob. This has been Everyday Law. It's your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.